Would you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 with me this morning? Ephesians chapter 3. Throughout many of Paul's letters, he prays that believers would know God. And he will do the same thing again in this passage. Why is it so important for us to know God? Why don't we know God as much as we should? I'm confident that the reason that we must know God is because it helps us to grow in our love for God and for one another more fully. And so that the, the, the foundation of our glad service to God, that is, doing whatever He wants us to do and serving one another, the foundation for that is knowledge of God. We have to know God. And so how do we get motivated for this glad service that we have a responsibility to take part in? The only way that we can do this is if the love of Christ is real in us. That that, that, that it is real. And um, sometimes we are like the travel agent who um, books these great vacations for people all over the world and tells them what a great place this would be for them to go on vacation and yet has never gone on one themselves. They don't understand the magnitude and the beauty of some of these places that they're sending people to and that's often the way it is with us in the spiritual life. We try to point other people to the great majesty and glory of God and yet we've never seen it or experienced it for ourselves. And so this is why we don't pray as much as we ought. This is why we don't witness as much as we ought because we haven't we haven't appreciated the depths of the riches of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so that's why it's so important for us to explore those depths for ourselves. We can't point other people adequately to God's greatness if we haven't examined it and experienced it for ourselves. If we have if we don't know him for ourselves. Last week we saw the great value of the church, that there's nothing greater in all the world. In fact, it's the way in which God displays His wisdom to all of creation. We saw that the church is this great, valuable tool that God is using. This week we'll see the great value of the love of Christ. And these two things go hand in hand, but they should be the springboard for our glad submission, our glad service to God. Our understanding and appreciation of the great value of the church and our understanding and appreciation of the value of Christ's love for us. So let me uh, see if I can show this to you as we look in the text. Let's read the text of God's Word here, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. This is the Word of God. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit and the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all 
that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. In order for us to give ourselves in glad service to God, we must recognize the value of God's love for us. We must recognize the value of God's love for us. And I think this passage displays what that love is very clearly. And I hope to be able to explain that to you. Paul begins in verses 14 and 15 with the beginning of the address of his prayer. You remember in chapter Paul had been explaining the excellencies of God's mercy. He was, uh, God was being merciful to His people by first bringing them into a right relationship with Him. Chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. It is by, faith, by grace you have been saved through faith. And then secondly, by uniting us together into one body, Jew and Gentile, into one body, which was unheard of in human history up until the church was formed. And so, after having explained all of that, he starts in chapter 3, verse 1, with a prayer. He's about to pray. Look at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Then he's about to say, I believe, I bow my knees before the Father, like he does in verse 14. But instead, he breaks off in verses 2 through 13 to explain the great value of the church. That it is the way in which God displays His wisdom to all of creation, particularly to the heavenly hosts. The angels and the demons are longing to see what's going on in the arena of Christ's church. And this is the way that God displays His wisdom to them. You want to see my wisdom on display? God says, look at my church. Look at this church that I bought with the blood of Christ. Look at how I changed them from people who are opposed to me, my enemies, now to people who are part of my family and who are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Something that is an impossibility apart from God's work of salvation and God's placing us into the church. Notice the posture of Paul's prayer in verse 14. I bow my knees. When a servant comes before his king, what does he do? He bows himself to the ground in reverence, right? In reverence for the king. And so Paul just overwhelmed with God's mercy, can't help but get down on his knees in reverence to God because of the great things that he has done in chapters 1 through 3. And then in verse 15, he exalts God by saying, You, Father, are the one in whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. How do we derive our name from God? Did God call down from heaven your last name? When you were born, Elwert, you know, or Raymond, you know, is that how that works? No, this means that that God owns us. Okay, it's not that He gave us our physical names that we know, but but rather that He names us because He owns us. Right? When was the last time that you named your neighbor's dog, or when was the last time you named your your uh, your cousin's child? You don't name them because They're not yours. They don't belong to you. But the children that are yours, the animals that are yours, you can name them. Naming implies ownership. And so the point that Paul is making here is we all derive our name from God. That we are human and we derive our name from, from God because He owns us. Now, 
if you notice in that text, though, it's more than just us, right? From whom every family in heaven and on earth. So we understand the on earth part. We get our name from God. But what about families in heaven? What is he referring to there? Well, he could be referring to believers who have died and have gone to heaven. And so they, in addition to we who are still living, have derived our name from God as well. Um, but that doesn't seem to make sense because since families will be dissolved once heaven is reached, that is, a person won't be given, won't marry or be given in marriage, so they're not going to be family in the same sense that they are now. More likely, families in heaven is referring to the angels. Even though they're never said to be a part of a family, this word for family here in verse 15 actually can be translated like it is in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. See if you can find which word uh, that is translated family here is translated here in Luke 2, 4 as something else. Joseph returned to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. It is the lineage, actually. So it is the house and we could also say family of David, right? He, He comes from that lineage. And so here's the point. God is the source of all life. Both families, all people who derive their lineage, they derive it ultimately from God. And the same thing is true of the angels. Not that they exist in families like we do, but they derive their existence from ultimately whom? God. They are from the line of God, so to speak. And so because He owns us, because... We belong to Him. He can be said to name us. And therefore, we should recognize Him as our rightful owner, our rightful Master. And so Paul begins his prayer in this way. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom you, God, you are the one from whom all derive their existence, is the point of verse 15. Now notice his request in verses 16 through 19. His request. Um it is a greater recognition of God's work. He wants believers to have a greater recognition of God's work. The foundation of his request first is seen in verse 16. Before we look at the content of his request, let's look at the foundation. It says that he would grant you, so he begins into his request, according to the riches of his glory. The foundation of the request that Paul is about to make with regard to our recognition of God's work is the riches of God's glory. So, God has this inexhaustible store of riches, doesn't He? And so, for Him to give to us is no problem to Him. And that means that we can, as verse 12 says, come before our Father with great boldness. We have access to Him. And we can be confident that He will respond because He has this great storehouse of goods, of riches that He desires to pour on us. I mean, think of it this way. If you needed money and you asked a poor man for help, you could be very eloquent in your request. You could be very persistent in your request. You could ask Him every day for ten years. How confident would you be that He would supply what you needed? Okay, But the confidence that we have in prayer is not based on the eloquence of our prayer It's not based on any magical incantation or cliche that we want to use in prayer. You know, bless this, bless that type of thing. Or, O thou who art in heaven, 
It's not any special formula of words, right? But rather, the basis for which God can give to us, whether that be spiritually or physically, financially, whatever the case, is because God is rich. And His riches are inexhaustible. And so that if we go to Him like a child goes to his father and asks for something, the reason he doesn't respond is not because he can't do it. This is our God. The basis for which Paul asks for these things is because God's resources are inexhaustible. The second foundation of the request is found uh, towards the end of verse 16. To be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Through His Spirit. The means by which God grants these requests that Paul's about to ask is the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit who supplies these things that he's going to ask for. So, Paul has been explaining the glorious truths of God, including the mystery of Christ, chapter uh, 3, verses 1 through 13. The mystery of Christ, that is the church. That God would bring Jew and Gentile together, put them on the same plane spiritually, and display God's matchless wisdom to his heavenly beings. And Paul wants us to understand the great position that we have, the great riches that we have in God. So let's look at the content of these requests, verses 16 through 19. There are three of them. Paul prays for, number one, spiritual maturity, number two, spiritual insight, and number three, spiritual fullness. Maturity, insight, and fullness. So first, Paul prays for spiritual maturity, verses 16 and 17 spiritual maturity. He prays for uh, spiritual maturity and it's expressed in three ways. First, an enlivened spirit. That He would grant you, verse 16, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Okay, This inner man is our inner person, our spirit. And what Paul is praying for, notice verse 16, is that He would grant us strength to be filled with power in our inner person. You think about this, this is really an amazing thing. Because our physical bodies are decaying day by day. The closer we get to death, the more our bodies decay. Can anybody attest to that? Eventually, our bodies won't be able to survive. Right? It has been the case for every human being in history. No non-glorified body can go on living forever. But here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16. While our outer man is decaying, what's happening? Our inward body, our inward person is being renewed how often? Day by day. You think about that? Our outer person is falling apart. It's getting worse and worse. We feel the pains of it. We're decaying. But our inner person is actually growing. It's actually getting better. It's becoming, can I say, more alive than it was when we first believed. And that is why it is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not because we've you know, worked up all of our effort to make ourselves a better person, but we are changed from the inside by the Holy Spirit. He's changing us. 
And the means by which He changes us is through this strength that Paul prays for, that He would grant you, verse 16, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power. Or we could say to be strengthened with strength. Why do we need need spiritual strength? Why do we need this Holy Spirit? Why can't we just do it on our own? Well, think about it from a physical perspective. This will become clear when you see what the main purpose of Paul's point is in this passage, but think about it from a physical perspective. If you're lying in a hospital bed for months, can you enjoy life at all? Okay, And I hope you would answer yes. You still can enjoy life even when you're in a hospital bed for months. But only to an extent. How much more can you enjoy the great riches that this life has to offer if you have full health. Right? You understand this. If you're older, you see some of these young people with all their athletic ability and you know, climbing mountains and things. And you think, if, if I were able to do that, I could probably enjoy life more fully, the riches of life. And here's the point. It's very similar to the spiritual life. If you are infirmed your whole Christian life, Yes, you can enjoy the Christian life. But you can't enjoy it as much as Paul wants you to enjoy it. You need the strength of God that comes through His Spirit so that you can get out and do things for Christ that matter. So you can get out and enjoy the riches of His grace. Here's what one commentator named Anders says. He says, "...without the power of God you would not grow." And you would not become more like Christ. You would not be motivated to help others. You would not be content in Him. While the power is not flamboyant, it is subtly miraculous. And these things are evidence that you have the power of God. When you are becoming more content with your life, no matter what kind of trials come, when you are doing more for Christ, when you are knowing God more, it's an evidence that the power of God is working in you. That although your outer man, your outer person is decaying, your inner person is growing and being renewed day by day. So, an enlivened spirit. That's what we need. We need our inner person to be enlivened. The second aspect of spiritual maturity that Paul prays for is in verse 17, and that is empowered faith. Empowered faith. So that... Okay, strengthen up your inner person. The Spirit does this, but you need to work with them. Strengthen your inner person so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. An empowered faith. That Christ would dwell in your... Wait a second, Paul. You're talking to believers. Why would people who are believers who have already trusted Christ need Christ to dwell in their hearts? Doesn't He already dwell in their hearts? Paul's not praying for that initial conversion that Christ would initially come and dwell in their hearts like He did in chapter 2 that you know talked about verse 4 that through God verse 5 that he made us alive that's not what Paul is talking about not initial faith he's talking about ongoing faith that Christ would dwell in your hearts in an ongoing way that more and more Christ would take residence in your heart that every aspect of your life would be under the control of Christ i mean can any of us say that we are in that place. I mean, are you full of faith every day? Are you never doubting in your Christian life? Or do you need Christ to to dwell in you more richly? 
And if you're honest with yourself, and if I'm honest with myself, I have to say, Christ needs to dwell in me more richly. I, it needs to be, he needs to be more real, more, more in control than He is now. Isn't this a great prayer for us to pray for ourselves? That Christ would dwell in our hearts richly. And a great prayer, by the way, when you pray for people in this church, that Christ would dwell in your hearts richly. So an enlivened spirit, verse 16. An empowered faith, verse 17. And then the third aspect of spiritual maturity that Paul prays for is an enriched love, verse end of verse 17. Being rooted and grounded in love. We could say that the result of an enlivened spirit and an empowered faith is growth in love. An enriched love for other people. And this love empowers our understanding. The more that we love God, the more we will want to know Him. The more we will want to be bathed in the riches of His grace. All of God's commands can be summed up in two ways. What are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. So, so is this something that we need? Do we need this kind of spiritual maturity where we are enlivened in our inner person growing with the strength that only the Holy Spirit supplies? Do we need an empowered faith and an enriched love? In, in short, do we need spiritual maturity? Or is your life marked by unstoppable spiritual growth, unbending faith, and unwavering love. If we are honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we all need to grow spiritually. We all need to mature, don't we? So here's the way that Paul sees this happening. We pray for it. He bows his knee to the God who has given existence to all people and he prays for this, for other people. It's not magic. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It prays. It happens through means as people pray for one another. So the first thing that Paul, Paul prays for is spiritual maturity. The second thing he prays for for these believers is spiritual insight, verses 18 and 19. Spiritual insight, that they would understand the depth of God's love for them. First, I want you to notice that this comprehension that he prays for them should not happen on an island. Look at verse 18 that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Okay, so whatever it is that Paul is praying for, with regard to our comprehension, our understanding, he wants us to do it with all the saints. Paul wants to know, he wants us to know God's love among believers. And how does this happen? Well, as we listen to God's Word preached together, as we fellowship with one another, reflecting on the love that God has shown to us, as we study our Bible together, as we tell other believers about the love that we see, the love that Paul wants us to understand that comes from God, he expects to happen within the context of believers, with all the saints. Notice the goal in verse 18. You may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth one of the ways the Spirit renews our inner person and that God empowers our faith is by showing the depth of His love for us. 
God loves us and He wants us to know it. He wants us to know that He is on our side. That He is for us. And that no one can be against us. He wants us to know that Romans 8.32, He did not spare up His own Son, but He delivered Him up for us all. And that since He did that, that greater thing, He will give us whatever we need. God wants us to know that He's on our side. Have you ever gotten a real sense that God loves you? Even later on in your Christian life, have you, have you just sensed that God loves me? Maybe it was in a, the deepest, darkest time of your life physically or with regard to your family relationship. And it was at that time that you turned to God and you sensed His love for you. You turned to His Word or some believer came up and gave you a word of encouragement and just really encouraged you and you recognize that it's, you're not alone. That God is on your side. Sometimes we get a real sense of God's love when, when we read the Word or when we hear the Word of God preached. I remember um, about a year or so ago when I was going through Revelation, when I was studying through Revelation chapter 12, and I recognized how much uh, of a battle there is that's going on in the spiritual realm. That as Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. In Revelation 12, it comes out very clearly because the, the demons are removed from the second heaven and brought, sent down to the earth no more to be there. And so they spend all of their time opposing people in the tribulation who are, who are for God, who, are, who have trusted in Christ. And I remember re- recognizing as I studied through that and as I preached it how real the demonic world was and how for years of my Christian life I had been oblivious to it. I thought, yeah, there's, I understand that there are demons, but they don't really affect me. They're not really seeking to go after me. And because of the power of Satan and his demons and because of that power being directed at, at, at us as believers, I recognized that it wasn't me that was holding myself up spiritually. But it was God who was protecting me. It was God who was delivering me from temptation. It was God, despite all this real spiritual threat, And at that time, I really got a sense of God's love for me. And I'm not looking for some spectacular experiential thing to happen in your life. But what I'm saying is, have you ever sensed God's love in your life? This should be happening often. It may happen when you're thinking about the words of a hymn. When you recognize what God has done. Because hymn writers are very good at putting in a succinct way and sometimes a poetic way what we feel about God or what is going on in our lives. And it really just strikes us of how much God loves us. Maybe it's when you recognized yourself in comparison to a lost person. You saw someone who was very similar to you, had the same path in life that you did. And they continued on their path into destruction and death. That is, spiritual death. And yet, for some reason, God took you off that very similar path. 
Maybe it was then that you sensed God's love for you. But here's what Paul wants you to see. He wants you to sense the love that God has for you, that it's just amazing. That's why he uses these big words at the end of verse 18. The breadth and the length and the height and the depth that you would understand the great vastness of God's love for you. Look at verse 19. And to know the love of Christ. He wants you to know this great love that He has for you. And this love of Christ is something amazing. Look at verse 19. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now, go back to that phrase again and think about it. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Let me shorten it. To know what surpasses knowledge. Okay? To comprehend what is incomprehensible. To fathom what is unfathomable. You say, well, wait a second. Well, that doesn't even make sense. It seems counterintuitive. You can't know what you can't know. You can't know something that surpasses knowledge. But the idea is not that it can't be known at all, but that we can't fully know it because of our finite minds. If we were infinite, we could fully know it. But we can't. We're limited in our understanding. And so what Paul is saying is, the love of God for you is unfathomable. It is surpassing knowledge. What I want you to do, and this is what I'm praying for, Paul says, is that you would understand a little bit of that love that God has for you. It's like exploring the depths of the ocean. You know, if, if, if that were my full-time job, I could explore all the scientific phenomena at the floor of the ocean, perhaps in one place, But for me to explore the entire ocean floor, it surpasses knowledge, doesn't it? It's incomprehensible. It's because the ocean floor is fathomless. We can't fully know it. Or it's like studying the star. We can know a lot about the stars, but we can't fully know them. And so whatever you know about Christ, you you may say, well, I saw what He did for me in salvation, so I know Christ. And here's what Paul's saying, I want you to grow in what you know about Christ. And you may know His love for you at salvation, but I want you to grow in what you know about His love. Because it's inexplorable fully. And so keep exploring it. If you know Christ and you know Christ's love for you, keep exploring it. You haven't plumbed the depths of the riches of His grace, have you? You haven't arrived in your understanding of His love and His work, have you? There's much more to know. And this exploration of Christ's love has a purpose. Look at the end of verse 19. The love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Spiritual maturity, spiritual insight, and then thirdly, Paul prays for spiritual fullness, that you would be filled with the fullness of God. What is this fullness of God? I would say simply that it is the fullness of who He is. Okay, now what you need to understand is Paul is not saying that you become the fullness of God. There's only one who is the fullness of God, right? Colossians 2.9 says that Christ is the fullness of deity in what? Bodily form, right? So we want to know what God is like. We want to know the fullness of deity. Look at Christ. We, we're not, Paul's not praying that we become the fullness of God. Do you understand? But that we be filled up with the fullness of God. Obviously, we can't become the fullness of God because we're finite. We're not deity. 
He prays that it will be filled with the fullness of God by understanding the depths of His love. So, let's all take a trip in our minds to the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. And think about the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean. What are we in comparison to the Atlantic Ocean as we stand there on the beach? There's little tiny dots, aren't we? Okay, and if we want to have the fullness of the Atlantic Ocean in our, in our control, right, in our possession, could we do that? Those little finite, tiny little dots on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean? No. But, suppose we had a container. We could take the fullness of the Atlantic Ocean and fill, be filled up in our container with the fullness of the Atlantic Ocean, couldn't we? Perhaps some of us have bigger containers, whatever the case, but we can be filled up. And, and so, so the illustration is this. Because God is infinite, we can't fully know the fullness of God, just like we can't fully capture the fullness of the Atlantic Ocean. But we can be filled up with God's fullness to the capacity that we're able based on whatever size container that we have. What Paul is saying is, I want you to expand in the container that you have so that you can, you can be filled up with that. You know, maybe when you came to Christ, you had this little container. And it was great to know God in that way and His love. And you were just overflowing with God's fullness and the understanding of that. But that's not where I want you to stop, Paul's saying. I want you to grow in that. Get a bigger container. So they'd be filled with the fullness of that and understand the great riches that God has for you. You say, well, Paul, I mean, that's way too big of a request. How could you pray that believers would continually be enriched by Christ dwelling in them? And how could you pray that they would grow in their knowledge and their love for God? And that they would be filled up with the fullness of God? So because of that, he concludes his prayer with a prayer wish in verses 20 and 21. Notice how he prays. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Remember, God has a limitless storehouse of riches. That is, the riches of His mercy are endless. And so for us to take some of that, or for God to give us some, is not a big deal to God as if He's going to go broke of mercy. His storehouse is overflowing with the riches of His grace. And here's what God's waiting for us to do. Simply to ask for it. God, would You fill me up with the love of God? Would You fill me up with the love of Christ so that I would know it more, so that I'd be filled up with the fullness of God? Paul says, do you think this is too big of a request to ask? It is to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. He's got plenty in supply to give to us. And this ultimately glorifies God. When we pray in this way for ourselves and for other people, this glorifies God. Look at verse 21. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The means of God's glory is two ways in this verse. It is through the church and through Christ Jesus. Now, Paul could be referring to the local church at Ephesus. To him be glory in the Ephesian church, perhaps. But notice, he says, 
in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations for how long? Forever and ever. So he's probably not talking about an individual church, but rather Christ's bride, the universal church, all believers from the time of Pentecost to the rapture. And as we saw last week, the reason God is glorified in this way, the reason that God receives great glory through the church is because we put His wisdom on display. Not because of what we have done, but because God has transformed something that was really worthless. We were worthless before we came to Christ and God transformed us into one body in Christ. And so the way that God is glorified is in the church and in Christ Jesus as chapter 1 verse 10 tells us. The sum of all things in all the universe comes to Christ. The fullness of Christ. And the extent of this glory that God will receive is not just now as the angels view and the demons view what's going on in Christ's church, but forever and ever, the text says. Forever and ever. And the, and the response that Paul has to this prayer, and I believe the response he expects us to make as his readers, is the very last word of the text. Amen. Hoping that we will agree with what Paul has been writing. Paul's greatest desire for them is not to be successful, prosperous, you know, in a physical, financial way, to have no family conflicts, you know, with our unbelieving family members. That's not what Paul's prayer is. Ultimately, his prayer is that we would grow in our knowledge and love for God and our understanding of his love for us. Let me leave you with five points of application. Number one, Exercise your inner person. Exercise your inner person. Your outer person is decaying and it needs exercise. Your inner person is being renewed and it needs exercise to be strengthened day by day. How's your inner person doing? Is it being strengthened day by day or is it decaying like your outer body is? Strengthen your inner person through, this is very basic, spiritual exercise. Okay, exercise the means of grace. How does God bring about good in the lives of believers? He does it through means. Through the Word. Through prayer. Okay, through fellowship with other believers. Are we taking advantage of those pieces of equipment that God has given to us? Or are we expecting some kind of, ma- some kind of magic to happen within us? So where do you need to grow spiritually? What do you need to exercise? What is the one thing that God has been working on in your life that you know you need to turn over to Him, but you haven't been willing to do it because you don't want to change? What is that one thing? Okay, I pray, Paul's prayer is that Christ would dwell in our hearts richly, more and more, in an ongoing way, that He would take residence in our home, our our hearts. Exercise your inner person. Number two, when you pray to God, pray as if God is powerful enough to respond. Okay, Pray as if God is powerful enough to respond. I hope you see the little bit of tongue-in-cheek in that statement. The point is, He is powerful enough to respond, but we don't often pray that way. Paul says, I pray that you'd be filled up with the fullness of God. And he could do that because he trusted that God could give more than Paul could ask or think. But I'm afraid that you and I don't pray as much 
or as fervently as we ought to, but because we think that God can do far less than we ask or think, right? And so, you know what? If I want it done, I'll get it done myself. I'm not going to God again. I wasted my time when I did that last time. I'm not doing that. It's because we don't understand the great treasure that is in the storehouse of God, that He wants to pour out His mercy, and that He's a loving Father that wants to give us good gifts. Number three, get a bigger container. Get a bigger container. As you stand on the edge of the fullness of God, get a bigger container so you can be filled up with that bigger container. I'm telling you that there's nothing greater that you can do with your life than to pursue a deeper knowledge of God. Nothing. Nothing greater than knowing His character, His works, His love, the inexhaustible riches of His glory. Do you know God in that way? Do you know and love God in an inexhaustible way? Can you fully understand and explain the depths of God's mercy for you? If not, then you've got some more work to do. Make it your goal in life to know Him as fully as you can, even though you don't know Him exhaustively. Make it the goal in life that you grow the size of your container so that the fullness of God would be filled up in you. And I'm convinced the only way we'll point other people regularly to the depth of God's love is if we have explored the depths ourselves. But sadly, we're like the teacher of oceanography who has only done his research by looking at Google Maps. I know a lot about, about the ocean from what Google has shown me, but he's actually never done a deep sea dive. And that tends to be the way we are as Christians. We can't say to other believers, you know, you need to get to know God better. We can't say to unbelievers, you need to come and bask in the pleasures of God's family because we haven't been there ourselves. We haven't discovered it for ourselves. Or maybe if we have, it's been such a long time. Get a bigger container. Number four, learn the depths of God's love in a community. Learn the depths of God's love in a community. Learning the depths of God's love is a community project. That's why verse 18 says that you will comprehend with all the saints. You may be especially skilled at your personal walk with God, but here's the real test. How are you doing corporately? Because James says if you truly love God, then you will love other believers. Any one of us can have a good walk with God on our own. But the real test is, can we have a positive, growing, vibrant, vital walk with God in the community of believers? Believers who are, in many ways, unlike us. They don't have all the same tastes as us. They have a little bit of quirks sometimes. I should say we, because I have some as well. Idiosyncrasies, all these things that makes us hard to love each other. You want to see if you really love God? Commit yourself to a community of believers and do it for a really long time. Don't go anywhere. You know, spend a long, lifelong commitment giving yourself to them and see the great treasure of knowing God together. 
comprehend the depths of Christ's love with all the saints. And then number five, use your life as a long-term investment in God's glory. A long-term investment in God's glory. God desires to display His wisdom to all creation, particularly to the heavenly host at this time. But, as Paul prays, that this glory would continue, kind of roll on and on, so that for all eternity, people keep thinking back to what God did to the church and say, praise God for what He did. And So here's how you can make your life a long-term investment in God's glory. You don't think about just the here and now. You think about eternally. How can I continually roll out praise to God because of my life in Christ? To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, give us a sense of what it means to understand Your love for us. We have known Your love because most people here have trusted in Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. And so we had to understand what that meant in order for us to turn in faith to Him. But I'm afraid that that, uh, we leave the path of righteousness too frequently and we trust more in our initial conversion than we do in the living Christ and we are more concerned that we made a decision than we are about making regular decisions I pray that you'd help us to know what great love you have for us may you change us Mold us, shape us, refine us to be more like Your Son, Jesus Christ, who fully knew what it meant to be loved by You and who fully does know. Help us to be filled up with all the fullness of You. Whatever capacity we have to understand the great depths of Your love, help us to know that. And help us to continually increase in our knowledge and maturity so that we can more fully know Your fullness. Give us wisdom strength and encouragement to do this, we pray. And to help others to do the same. In Jesus' name, Amen.